0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 36 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, October the 4th. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow.
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: First, I talk to Dominic Carosa, the CEO of influencer platform Crowd Media, And then I'll be talking to RMIT economist Professor Sinclair-Davidson, analyzing the Morrison government's latest budget update. But for now, let's talk to Dominic Carosa. Uh, Dominic Carosa, tell us about Crowd Media. Uh,
1: thanks uh, uh, for having me first, uh, Leon. Um, so Crowd's been listed since uh, January 2015 uh, on the ASX. And uh, you know, over the last 12 months, we've uh, really refocused the attention into the digital media space, uh, taking advantage of you know, the, the major changes that are going on in social media and influencer marketing. Maybe just to take a, a step back and just to try and paint the picture around the market that uh, crowd media is involved in, um, you only need to walk down the street these days to see that you know, millennials specific, specifically are spending more time on their mobile phones. You know, they're basically staring into their screens and you may ask, well, what are they doing? They're on social media sites like uh, YouTube and Facebook and, and Instagram and with that, there's been a, an increase in the number of um, what we call digital influencers, and these are in- individuals that have uh, a high number of uh, followers on Instagram or, or on YouTube, and in effect, they're in a, in creating a new type of TV channel. You know, whether it's in, involved in fashion or, or news or, or sport, and so millennials these days are in effect consuming. Um, this content and getting entertained uh, as well as also you know learning about new recommendations for products using social media and and that is really an area that crowd media is involved in really tapping into this new change of how millennials are experiencing and consuming digital media.
0: So it's very much pitched at the millennial market? Our our
1: products are predominantly pitched at the millennial market um, but we also work with a number of brands that are also trying to target the millennials and uh, over the last 18 months we've worked with large brands such as L'Oreal and Nescafe out of Europe who are trying to target millennials and the only way to really target that market these days is through social media and digital influencers, because they're just simply no longer watching television or listening to the radio you know they're online they're listening to podcasts so it's really just a, a new form of media and, and so we're really tapping into this new way of Experiencing content, and with that, in fe- effectively embedding advertising
0: within that content. So, how does the technology work for Crowd Media? Um,
1: so, Crowd has built uh, a technology platform both around what I call our Q and A, our traditional question-answer mobile division, um, where we've got a, a bunch of what we call AI, artificial intelligence, that actually helps answer those questions, and that's one of our entertainment products. Um, but specifically around the influencers, we've built tools that allow us to understand who are the major influencers out in the marketplace, um, how many followers they've got. But more importantly these days, that's basically more important than the number of followers, is engagement. So how engaged are the followers of this specific influencer? And what I mean by that is, you know, are they commenting, are they liking that particular post? And so for us and the brands that we work with, Getting access to that data is really important, so we've built tools that help us understand and effectively match the right influencer with the right brand or product, because there are millions of influencers out there, and so making sure that we get that alignment right is absolutely critical for ourselves as well as for brands.
0: You must have an acute acute, uh, artificial intelligence system.
1: Uh, yes, we've, we've spent the last uh, three to four years building this platform, um, that the AI platform that helps, in effect, run our uh, operations. And we also have a team of uh, almost 50 people in our Amsterdam office in the Netherlands, and you know, a chunk of those spend their time, and particularly the, the youngsters, spend their time on social media trying to find the newest and the greatest influencers. So part of it is done by technology, And part of it is just done by old-fashioned research online trying to find new upcoming influencers that we can basically bring onto our platform and then make them available to brands such as L'Oreal and Nescafe and and multiple others.
0: You're you're based in Melbourne,
1: are you not? I'm I'm originally from Melbourne. I'm a Melbourne boy, uh, in fact, from uh, Richmond. And uh, about three and a half years ago... In order to be as close to the company as possible, I moved myself and my family to Amsterdam, which is where the bulk of our operations uh, come from. And also from a revenue perspective, the majority of our revenue comes from Europe. And, uh, and part of the reason that we look towards Europe was simply because the addressable market um, is materially larger than Australia. And so I wanted to be as close to our customers and as close to our team as possible and hence made that move a number of years ago.
0: Why Amsterdam?
1: Uh, good question. Um, so we made an acquisition in 2015 that was based out of the Netherlands. Um, we also at that time had an office in Berlin and Budapest, and uh, we just it just made sense to combine all of those offices into one. And you know, other than the Netherlands providing, let's call it some you know tax advantages, being based out of the Netherlands, it's also a really good place to be able to attract good quality people because people do usually want to go and live in, in, uh, in Amsterdam and so it's really you know quality of people, um, some fairly positive um, government incentives in terms of being able to attract companies and people and that's the reason we move there.
0: How do you attract your talent? Uh,
1: good question, so we actually use social media particularly if we're trying to attract the millennials, the digital marketers, the digital strategists. Um, we actually use Instagram, LinkedIn is another platform, uh, Glassdoor is, a, is another website that we use, uh, but also through word of mouth. And, and so that's how we attract people and we've got a, an internal um, uh, program that we run for our staff. If they recommend someone who starts with the company, they actually get a bonus, which in fact is more cost effective for us instead of paying an agency.
0: That's quite extraordinary. And, uh, and you retain them how?
1: Uh, that's a good question. So... You know, having a good working culture is obviously absolutely critical um, for, uh, for our company. And, you know, young people are obviously motivated. You know, there's partly money, but it's also other things. So one of the things that we do, particularly for our millennials, um, every fortnight we have a, uh, a training program around something to do with social media or social media marketing. So that training and learning is a, a really important part of our retention program. Um, and at the same time, once they develop further and become you know, managers or middle management, um, we actually have a share option plan um, to, in effect, allow them to become shareholders of the company and being a, a listed company, help facilitate that because we can have option plans and performance rights plans as well.
0: That's, that's quite extraordinary. So, I mean, millennials are quite a different demographic from... Uh, Even th- myself. <laughs> from boomers and Generation X. X. yes. Uh, so a, a lot of companies don't know how to deal with that, but you've obviously established yourself quite a niche there, haven't you? Yeah, I, I'd say
1: about two-thirds of our workforce would be classified as millennials. Um, I'm Gen X, so I, in fact, I'm, the I think, the oldest, if not one of the oldest people in the company. Um, so most of our people are millennials. and. Personally, I don't actually see a, a major difference in terms of managing a millennial versus managing a, a normal person. For me, it just comes down to common sense. A, it's finding out, what does that actual person really want? Um, you know, is it, you know, obviously money's one thing and that's and that I think is, is a factor, maybe not the most, in factor, the most important factor. Um, two, a flexible working environment. Um, three, the right kind of training because one thing that I've learned it's not just millennials, but I think it's all people. Typically, most people want to learn. They want to learn new things and they want to improve themselves, whether it's for the work that they do at Crowd or in the future or future work that they have. And so um, with that, having ongoing training programs, because social media is changing all the time, um, you know, and that's one way that we're able to retain people is just by, in effect, helping and training them um, for their future.
0: Of course, millennials have a reputation for job hopping, and uh, but... One of the keys, I think, for you would be to actually train them to develop more skills, to give them better skills in the workforce. Would that be an issue?
1: Uh, undoubtedly. I think you know, the training in terms of those, let's call it the hard skills, is one thing, and then the training in terms of the more soft skills, you know, the interaction with people. And, and we've, we actually do spend you know, a lot of time and energy on training our people because, end of the day, if we look after our people people will look after our customers and then obviously if we have happy customers we'll end up having happy shareholders so I guess we take a a slightly different view to a lot of ASX companies where they say you know the most important thing is our shareholders and I take a a different view if I look after our team they look after our customers which ultimately means better returns for our shareholders.
0: Now your big focus is in Europe but uh, you're looking at other markets as well? When
1: we originally started the company, we started in Australia and then we moved to the UK and then Ireland and then it expanded from there. Um, We've got a lot of work to do just within the European marketplace right now. We've got an addressable market of um, 500 million people um, within our office. We speak over a dozen different languages. um, And that's one of the positives of living in Europe. Typically, you have people that don't just speak one language, but they speak multiple languages. We are looking at some other markets in Asia and the US, but we have a lot of work still to do within the European marketplace um, because unlike Australia or the US, it's it's not as homogenous. So each country is quite specific and different and and has its own little nuances. And so for that... And I think that also creates barriers to entry for competition. And, and that's part of the reason that we've had some of these large brands coming to us. Instead of them having to launch a product in five countries and dealing with five different agencies, they can come to us and we can give them a pan European promotion
0: for their product. Well, Dominic, that sounds fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Leon. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Professor Sinclair-Davidson. Well, Sinclair-Davidson, the government has brought out a budget update and they claim the budget is in balance. It's actually running a deficit. Uh, What's your view about that? Um,
2: I think the government are, are, are very keen and happy to run a good news story and that's what they want to run but when i had a look at the underlying cash balance i saw a number with a minus in front of it and um, i think it's it's very easy here we have a plus or a minus Um, when it's a plus it is in surplus when it's a minus it is in deficit and the underlying cash uh, balance is a negative 690 million dollars now to be fair uh, last financial year, that was $10 billion. So they brought it down by $9 billion. So that's not nothing. But um, I, I think the, the idea that we we're in, in balance needs to be taken with, with quite a large grain of salt. Uh,
0: what is driving that improvement? Uh,
2: that's mostly increases in taxation. Um, so the, the revenue which government has been earning has increased very dramatically. Um, spending has not come down at all... The way I would have liked to have seen. So uh, the the uh, revenue as a percentage of GDP is twenty four point nine percent. And if we have a, and if we think about uh, compared to just even at the almost just after the GFC, that was at twenty one percent. So uh, it's gone up to to nearly twenty five percent of GDP. Is almost actually, a quarter is almost a quarter is revenue. Spending is uh, um, slightly higher, um, but nonetheless, it's 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 not nearly good enough actually because we've the government have grown the budget back into let's say almost surplus by uh, um, allowing taxation to increase
0: and of course we've got the tax cuts coming in we do we do but
2: bear in mind those tax cuts are phasing in um, over a long period of time so for high income earners they're not going to see anything until i think it's 23 24 somewhere around about there. so we still got four or five years to go before those tax cuts actually start costing the government big money. Right now, they're cutting taxes for people who don't pay very much tax. So I think we're going to see a bit of, let's say, fiscal drag, uh, uh, keeping the budget looking a bit healthier than it really should be.
0: Right, Okay. So what is the prospect of it hitting the surplus (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think the I, I think the budget will be in surplus well before those tax cuts start becoming a problem. Um, even now, if you have a look at it, it's 690 million dollars. This is a deficit. Yes, so the, the, the deficit. That's not really a big number in the grand scheme of things, uh, but nonetheless, it's still a negative number. I mean, even it's, it's what in this this week, last week, uh, Mr. Morrison gave 150 million dollars to the Americans uh, to go to Mars or something. Um, Look, on the one hand, I think it's a bit of a waste of money. On the other hand, well, you know, some Australian companies might get business out of that. Um, But so that $690 million, I think, will be very quickly whittled away, and I I anticipate next year the budget will be in surplus, and they will start growing it into a bigger number. Um, I think, to my mind, a balanced budget is a budget in surplus, a small surplus, um, obviously not a large surplus, but I I think we'll be looking at large-ish surpluses by the time those tax cuts actually start. Start delivering big revenue back to taxpayers. But the
0: issue is the spending has not gone down at all.
2: Spending has not gone down. So, what has happened is the, the old fashioned thing um, one side of politics ratchets up spending and the other side of politics then goes and pays for it. Um, we've seen this happen a few times over the last 30, 40 years. It's happened again. The, the, the budget will become balanced at a higher level of GDP. That's more or less uh, what the the Labor government was trying to do when they were in office. They were also planning to grow the economy back into surplus, and it just has has happened that the Liberals have actually done that. Um, So that's a a fairly typical pattern we've observed in Australian history over the last 40, 50 years.
0: Nonetheless, there are pressures on the government now to spend, uh, to engage in some fiscal policy from the RBA. Yes. And uh, and from business, for that matter. Yes, yes. And uh, so this is going to put pressure on the government, and, and will put pressure on the said surplus.
2: Yes, will it, it, not? it It will. It will. It's. it's uh, we have this. There's a strange thing at the moment. Um, we keep on hearing the economy is weak. Now, if you have a look at GDP growth figures, it certainly does look weak. If you have a look at uh, um, inflation figures, 1.6%, it's below the the 2 the to 3% RBA range. Um, per, at a personal level, I think this is a good thing. I think 2 to 3% is far too high. But nonetheless, people think that. Um, but I've been, I've been having a look around. Um, I live in the inner west of Melbourne, and um, I've been noticing uh, a large number of luxury vehicles on the roads. Um, this morning I saw two Porsche SUVs and a, a, a soft-top Mercedes driving down the road. Um, and this I, is in the western suburbs? In the western suburbs of Melbourne. Um, when you walk down the road, you see people drinking five, six dollar cups of coffee um, as, as, as a luxury good. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at this thinking, how weak is the economy really if all of a sudden we're seeing these sort of consumption behaviours. So it's not clear to me... Unemployment's at, at, what, 5.3%, which we might think is a big number, but if we went back, oh, to the late 90s, 5.3% as an unemployment figure would be a glorious success. So it's not clear to me the economy is weak. It's not clear to me that inflation needs to pick up. I'm not a big fan of inflation at all. Um, I know the Reserve Bank government is, is calling on the government to spend more money on infrastructure... I always hate that idea. I think if you want to pump money into the economy, bring the tax cuts forward. Um, that would be a better way to spend money than rather going out and, and creating make-work opportunities. If we think back even to the GFC, um, the, the everybody received... A nine, two, I think it was two $900 checks in the space of a year or so um, in, in terms of government just trying to splash money out into the economy. And what actually happened, the RBA did an analysis there, or it might have been Treasury did an analysis there, very little of that money was actually spent. Most of that money was used to buy down debt or saved. So it's not clear to me that cash handouts or or big spending projects that are, are probably unnecessary should be undertaken. If a project is a good project, it should be done anyway. But the notion that somehow the government needs to spend money and the notion that somehow the government needs to borrow now because interest rates are low now, I think is bad economics. Um, money costs what it costs. If you borrow money now, even if you borrow it at 1%, 2 3%, um, you've got to pay back in the future. And it's a burden on the future to pay back. So... Uh, if they're going to do anything, bring forward the tax cuts. But otherwise, um, I think just hang in there, see what happens, put the budget back into surplus. We never know what's going to happen in the world. I think Mr. Trump's uh, trade war with the Chinese is creating problems in the world, and we need to be well-placed to actually handle, uh, let's say, a global recession, heaven but if that should happen.
0: Or certainly, if not a global recession, then a global turndown. or a slowdown. Yes, that's what seems to be the case at the yes,
2: moment. Yes, yes, I, I think the, the 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 trade war between the Americans and the Chinese is not doing anybody any good. I think um, high levels of uncertainty coming out of Great Britain, who would believe, um, is also a problem. So it, it, it's it's I would have thought that uh, keep your powder dry, build up a surplus, bring bring forward tax cuts. These are the sorts of things people should be thinking about. Um, I think big infrastructure spend or contrived big infrastructure spend, I think, is a waste. I mean, here in Victoria, for example, uh, the government is spending a lot of money on on building a second loop and upgrading roads and what have you. This is valuable expenditure because it can be justified in terms of what the city needs in future. But I think to go out and look for projects for just for the hope of splashing money into the economy is always a mistake.
0: Uh, so you're saying the budget needs to be inserted and the budget will be well prepared for yes. what appears to be a global downturn? The probability
2: of a global downturn, to my mind, is, is increasing over time, yes. yes. Um, especially, I think, the, the, uh, the unnecessary trade war between the Americans and the Chinese
0: indeed and uh, and although uh, people are predicting recession uh, america is still growing
2: yes Yes, uh, um, um, and, and the way if, if you go to the states the, the way to see how well the economy is going is just look in the stores every store window that, that you see now when I go to the states has got now hiring or looking for people so uh, companies in, in America are actually expanding their operations trying to bring on more people um, this is a good thing um, it, it is nice to see the American economy going well because after all the, you know when, when America does well we all do well uh, when China does well we all do well too so it, it is unfortunate that the the two largest economies of the world right now um, are engaged in a, a trade war for 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 reasons I, I don't really understand.
0: And uh, although Australia's is growing at a lower than expected one point four percent, it's still growth.
2: It is still growth, and the other thing that I th- that worries me is I think we might not be measuring our growth correctly anymore. Um, I, I, I just spent the weekend at a, at, a, at a seaside resort town, which I've been to quite a lot, and walking down the Esplanade, in the past you would see lots of, well, I call them junk shops, but sort of bric a brac and things to buy and, and stuff to accumulate in the house. Um, a lot of those stores are now gone, and what you've now got are a lot of coffee shops and a lot of restaurants and bistros and what have you, and I kind of think that we, we are changing our spending behaviours away from accumulating stuff, to accumulating experiences. Now, measuring the services economy is a lot, lot harder than measuring a, a production economy. So I actually think we may have measurement problems um, at the moment, which might be sort of under, underestimating how much growth we've actually got in the economy. Certainly, there, as I say, when I look at the, the, the number of vehicles on the road and the types of vehicles on the road um, and people upgrading their houses and
0: what have you, it's not clear to me that the economy is doing that badly. Sinclair-Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, a US Federal Reserve Bank has taken aim at the Morrison government's boast that the Australian economy has enjoyed 28 years of uninterrupted growth, suggesting it has experienced three recessions in that time and relies excessively on immigration. The Federal Reserve Bank of St Louis, one of the 12 components of a US central bank, said the oft-repeated claim should be taken with a grain of salt, and argued that Australia was effectively in a recession earlier this year, given its economy was growing more slowly than the population. It has been argued that Australia hasn't had a recession in 28 years. But is this really the case? the bank asked. Australia has had three recessions since 1991, when looking at GDP per capita, the most recent one being from the second quarter of 2018 to the first quarter of 2019. It's true that Australia's relatively strong population growth helps grow the economy. And in terms of living standards, it's GDP per person or per capita that really matters. And the recent slowdown in GDP growth to 1.4% year on year, which is below 1.6% population growth, is a big concern. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has cut the cash rate to a fresh historic low of 0.75%. The decision had been widely anticipated by the market with only a handful of economists expecting the bank to hold steady. And in a subsequent speech, RBA Governor Philip Lowe conceded that further interest rate cuts are inevitable and called on government and business to help arrest the decline in growth. He also sounded the warning about the potential for a sudden financial shock. And ratings agency Moody's has forecast Australian mortgage delinquencies will continue to rise on the back of high debt, weakening macroeconomic conditions and conversion of interest-only loans. And Australian housing prices rose in September as a rebound in the nation's property market gathered pace. Housing values in capital cities jumped 1.1% last month, CoreLogic data showed. Nationwide, prices gained 0.9%, the biggest jump since March 2017. The upswing is largely concentrated in Sydney and Melbourne, with home prices surging 1.7% in each last month. Strong population jobs growth are powering the nation's two largest cities, while remote towns like Hobart and Darwin continue to decline. And Australia's earnings from mining and energy exports are projected to peak by the middle of next year, though weaker raw materials prices and waning demand have trimmed the forecast high, according to the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. Earnings in the year ending June 30, 2020 are now forecast at $281.6 billion, down from $279.3 billion a year earlier. The figure compares to a forecast published on July first for $284.6 billion. A global slowdown in industrial output means commodities prices have retreated from recent highs, and the sector will need to contend with softer demand and rising supply, the department said in a report. US-China trade tensions mean this weaker outlook for Australia's base metal and energy exports, though the wider industry is benefiting from an increase in gold export earnings and the depreciation of the Australian dollar. Cutbacks in global manufacturing are already flowing through into commodity markets, the department's chief economist David Turvey says in the report. Any further decline in Chinese economic growth could have even more significant effects on global supply chains for a range of technology and other products, he says. And banks, superannuation funds and insurers ramped up advertising spending to unprecedented levels during the Hayne Royal Commission last year to counter the negative publicity splashed across newspapers and leading TV news segments generated by the hearings. New data from the Standard Media Index shows financial services turn to digital sources to boost favourable messages, with money spent on search, for instance, increasing their placement in Google search results, enjoying the largest share of growth across all digital advertising spending in 2018-19 financial year. SMI tracks spending from four of the five large media agency groups, which sector is spending the money, and which medium it's being spent on. While calendar 2018 may have seen the banks spend big, Haynes' final report, which was delivered in February, saw overall domestic bank ad spend pull back heavily from those record levels. SMI data shows domestic bank spend in the first six months of 2019 plummet 16.8% compared to the same time last year. Insurers increased their spend by 6.3% in the same period. In the 2018-19 financial year, the financial services industry accounted for a total of 40% of all dollars spent on digital advertising in 2018-19, which ranged from placing branded content on publishing websites such as Junkie and Pedestrian to trying to lift their rankings in Google's search results. Beyond digital, the financial services industry also spent an extra $34.3 million in 2018-19 on posters and billboards over the previous year. And the rapid growth in Australia's fintech platforms has left some vulnerable to being used by offenders involved in money laundering, terrorism financing, the sale of illicit items and child sex exploitation. Financial intelligence agency Ostrak is warning pubs and clubs, money remitters and fintechs offering payment services to harden their technology systems to help protect against organised crime or risk being hit with public enforcement actions as the agency is emboldened after the Hain Royal Commission. After last week ordering United States payments giant PayPal to appoint an auditor to investigate issues with its international transaction reporting, OSTRAC chief executive Nicole Rose warned companies in the gambling and other money-handling industries they also could be targeted if they avoid responsibilities to prevent money laundering. While the PayPal case was triggered by its own self-reporting to OSTRAC, she said less than a quarter of OSTRAC's financial services cases result from self-disclosure. Many are uncovered by intelligence staff working with the law enforcement. OSTRAC has seen a 95% increase over 2018-19 in the number of suspicious matter reports being filed compared to the previous year. After unveiling its PayPal action last week, OSTRAC gathered members of the pubs and clubs industry to a meeting in Sydney and also met with groups of money remitters in Perth to look at what money laundering risks they might have, she said. And the federal government, is being urged to ban Google and Facebook from using any Australian news publisher's content unless deals are done for sharing of revenue and data. The prohibition is advocated by News Corp Australia in a submission to the government ahead of its formal response to the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's landmark digital platforms inquiry. The submission, made public on Monday, supports the ACCC's recommendation for codes of conduct over relationships between digital platforms and media businesses, arguing... There must be real consequences for non-compliance. This could be achieved through enabling legislation, News said, to prohibit a digital platform from using any news publisher's content and collecting any data generated by the use of any news publisher's content unless all news publishers, or at least the major ones, have negotiated and entered into agreements with that digital platform. News said in its submission that the codes should be policed by the AC, not the Australian Communications and Media Authority, as a commission had recommended. A New Farm is offloading its South American business to powerful Japanese backer Sumitomo for $1.18 billion in a deal aimed at easing financial pressure on the farm chemical supplier. Sumitomo is set to take control of New Farm crop protection and seed treatment operations in Brazil, Argentina, Colombia and Chile. Under the deal... New Farm will purchase ninety seven point five million dollars of preference securities issued to Sumitomo in august to shore up the company's operations for the twelve months ended july thirty one new farm reported a fourteen per cent lift in revenue to three thousand seven hundred fifty eight million dollars thanks to a combination of acquisitions and growth in all regions except australia and new zealand underlying EBITDA came in nine per cent higher year on year at four hundred twenty million dollars which was in line with its guidance this was driven by a full-year contribution from the European portfolio acquisitions and growth in the North America, Sea technologies and Asia business segments. On the bottom line, underlying net profit after tax fell 9%, primarily due to the impact of a full year of depreciation and amortisation relating to the acquired European portfolios. And more than one in three Aussies are lying to get their mortgage approved and dupe Royal Commission lending restrictions. More Australian home buyers are submitting false information in order to obtain mortgages, despite banks and brokers promising tougher lending checks in the wake of the Banking Royal Commission, a new survey by investment bank UBS has found. The number of home loans applicants obtaining a mortgage after inflating their income and downplaying their living costs has jumped to record levels, according to research from UBS. For people who had their mortgage applications rejected twice. 76% of them conceded they provided inaccurate or misleading information. 48% of applicants who hired a mortgage broker said they suggested we underrepresent their income and expenses. 37% of borrowers were not entirely honest in their mortgage applications, the Bank's anonymous survey of 903 Australians revealed, despite tougher lending standards imposed since the Banking Royal Commission. The surge in so-called liar loans comes amid a rise in property prices, rebounding auction clearance rates and the RBA's interest rate cuts. It was a significant jump compared to last year when UBS found that 32% of borrowers fudged their income and expenses when the Royal Commission was in full swing. And sales of vinyl records are set to pass those of CDs in Australia. In 2009, CDs were responsible for 72% of Australian music industry revenue and vinyl less than 1%. Ten years later, streaming has scooped up 83.13% of sales. Yet vinyl is predicted to account for 6.37% sales, with CDs getting just 5.37%. Vinyl's rebirth has been largely driven by independent record stores who persevered with the format through the dark years of public neglect and over half, or 56%, of Australian office workers have had their data compromised as part of a breach or hack, including nearly 3 in 10, or 28% more than once, according to a survey of office workers in Australia, the US, UK and Japan. According to the survey report, Hook, Line and Sinker, Why Phishing Attacks Work, by global IT security company Webroot, and undertaken in partnership with Wakefield Research, 30% of Australian respondents did not take the basic step of changing their passwords after the incident, and only one in three, or 33%, informed a government agency. Webroot says that not only is this false confidence potentially harmful to an employee's personal and financial data, but it also creates risks for companies and their data. The survey also revealed that while a majority of Australian office workers, or 91%, reported being able to distinguish a phishing message from a genuine one, more than half, or 60%, also admitted to having clicked on a link from an unknown sender while at work, especially from email at 75%. And two big companies are underpaying workers. First, West Farmers has revealed it underpaid thousands of workers by $15 million over a decade due to payroll errors. The retail giant's industrial and safety arm identified underpayments affecting about 2,000 current employees and 4,000 former employees at Blackwoods, Workwear Group, Coregas, and Greencap. And more than a dozen subway outlets across the East Coast have been caught underpaying employees as part of an ongoing investigations into the franchise network. The Fair Work Ombudsman revealed on Tuesday it had recovered $81,638 for 167 current and former underpaid employees following investigations into 22 Subway franchisees in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. The watchdog found 18 of the 22 franchisees were breaching workplace laws by failing to pay minimum wages, casual loadings, holiday and overtime rates, or not keeping proper employment records, or issuing proper pay slips. Inspectors have issued the franchisees with seven compliance notices to rectify breaches, nine formal cautions about future non compliance, and nine on the spot fines for record keeping and pay slip breaches totaling $5,880. The latest payback. Total means that FWO has recovered almost $150,000 for underpaid subway employees over the past two financial years. And National Australia Bank will take a billion-dollar hit to its full-year profit after announcing it has put aside $1.18 billion to fund customer remediation, predominantly in its financial advice operation. The announcement brings NAB's total projected customer remediation bill to just over $2 billion. In an announcement to the ASX on Wednesday morning, NAB said the latest remediation package would go towards refunding advisor service fees paid to self-employed advisors. The charging of advisor service fees to customers who weren't receiving any advice was one of the most widespread and systematic instances of misconduct exposed by the Hayne Royal Commission. The revelations concerning NAB resulted in the resignation of Chief Executive Andrew Thorburn and Chairman Ken Henry. And Hungry Jack's founder, Jack Cowan, and CSIRO's $232 million innovation fund will lead the construction of a $20 million Australia First facility for processing grain legumes into alternatives to meat. The factory will supply V2 Food, a new plant-based meat venture by the National Science Organisation, its innovation fund backed by institutional investors like Host Plus and Cowan's Competitive Foods, the supplier and operator of more than 430 Hungry Jack's restaurants nationwide. Camping and hiking gear retailer Kathmandu is expanding into surfwear, agreeing to buy iconic Australian surf brand Rip Curl from founders Brian Singer, Douglas Warbrick, for $368 million New Zealand dollars, that's $350 million Aussie dollars. Christchurch-based Kathmandu said the Rip Curl acquisition creates a $1 billion opportunity for the company together with its Oboz footwear brand. Like Oboz, the acquisition of Rip Curl will help diversify Kathmandu's product and geographic mix and channels to market, reducing its reliance on apparel and on the mature New Zealand retail market. The combined group will have a deeper and more meaningful global presence with a combined footprint of 341 owned retail stores, 254 licensed stores and over 7,300 Wholesale Doorways Globally. This is expected to drive scale benefits. Rip Curl was founded in Bells Beach by surfers Brian Singer and Douglas Warbrick in 1969. They own 90% of the company with the remaining 10% spread across associates of the founders. Katmandu was founded in Christchurch in 1987 and is dual listed on the New Zealand and Australian Stock Exchanges. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Colin Anson digital entrepreneur and the CEO and co-founder of a child protection image and photo storage solution, P70. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the RBA's latest rate cut and what's ahead. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.